It is logical that the United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health in the world, without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace. Our policy is directed not against any country or doctrine, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. Its purpose should be the revival of a working economy in the world so as to permit the emergence of political and social conditions in which free institutions can exist. Such a system, I am convinced, must not be on a piecemeal basis as various crises develop. Any assistance that this government may render in the future should provide a cure rather than a mere palliative. This is the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. I'm Fred Dews. When asked to deliver an address during the 1947 commencement exercises at Harvard University, then Secretary of State George C. Marshall used the opportunity to suggest an economic recovery plan to revitalize Europe. He laid out a practical economic case, as well as a moral one, for why the U.S. should undertake a concerted plan to revive the countries of Western Europe that were devastated by World War II. Seventy years later, Assumptions about the liberal world order and America's preeminent place in world affairs are under challenge. In embracing an America first ethos, some in the administration of President Donald Trump, including the president himself, are questioning the value of international development assistance and claiming that America already pays more than its share in terms of contributions to the United Nations, NATO, and other multilateral organizations. In this episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, four diverse experts who recently attended the Brookings Blum Roundtable sponsored by the Brookings Global Economy and Development Program, share their views about U.S. global leadership. Included are two philanthropists, a Chinese policymaker, and an American innovator focused on delivering aid differently. My colleague, Merrill Tuck Primdahl, a communications director here at Brookings, attended the roundtable and recorded the interviews. She'll be your guide through the episode. At the end of Merrill's story, stay tuned for another installment of What's Happening in Congress with Governance Studies Fellow Molly Reynolds. Visit our website, brookings.edu, to read the briefs prepared for the Brookings Blum Roundtable, to check out the agenda as well as who attended. Listeners may also want to check out President John R. Allen's blog from August 10, The Case Against a U.S. Retreat from International Development. When in 1948, the U.S. rolled out the Marshall Plan, more formally called the European Recovery Program, it was not just out of compassion and generosity, but out of self-interest. A revived Europe meant more markets for U.S. goods, and it solidified loyalty from allied nations and helped counter Stalin's designs on divided Germany and other European nations. Yet today, aid, and with it, U.S. global leadership, are under threat. As Brookings President John R. Allen wrote recently in a blog, U.S. President Donald J. Trump's transactional, short-sighted approach to international relations is eroding America's global standing. Our country's moral authority will slip away and be filled eagerly by other forces in the world, not least of all China, if we retreat too far. I'm Merrill Tuck Primdahl, Communications Director at the Brookings Institution. At the Brookings Blum Roundtable, I heard experts talk about practical ways of solving big challenges. From countering the Trump administration's skepticism about international development aid, to preventing the trafficking of girls, to empowering local people in poor places, to whether China, now a rising donor nation, 
is a threat to U.S. global supremacy. First, let's hear from Richard C. Blum, who, together with former Brookings President Strobe Talbot, conceived the roundtable over 15 years ago. Well, the Marshall Plan is one of the best things that ever happened, period, because it was after World War II. People don't realize that a year or two after the war was over, more people were starving to death than during the war in places like Germany. And so the Marshall Plan came in and helped everywhere west of the Iron Curtain. So you had democracy and you had economic prosperity. If you were on the other side of the Iron Curtain, you wound up with Stalin and Mao. So it's not just what you gain from successful development. It's what you avoid in terms of the consequences of things going the wrong way. So now you have a whole bunch of countries in Africa that are developing, some in the Middle East, a couple of them still in Latin America. And you want to say, we don't want to run them, but we'd like to influence them towards having market economies, having prosperity, having democracy. And if we ignore them, then who knows what's going to happen. I'm Richard Blum. I'm founder of the Brookings Blum Roundtable. I also spent a lot of time with the University of California. I'm on the Board of Regents, and we have something called the Blum Centers for Developing Economies. It started at Berkeley, and it are all 10 campuses. And with my daughter, Annette, who's here, we now have a center in Jerusalem as well. And most importantly, this all really started with the American Himalayan Foundation, which I started some 30 years ago, probably touches 400,000 people today. Started with helping Sherpas go to school, Tibetan refugees with the Dalai Lama, and our biggest program today is saving young girls from being sold. We have 22,000 of them in school, and however bad you think that problem is, it's worse. Dick Blum, who also serves as an honorary trustee for the Brookings Institution, is the author of a fascinating book, Accident of Geography, an autobiography tracing his role in equity investment through to his philanthropic pursuits. Dick's interest in doing good emerged over the course of many trips to Nepal and Tibet, where, as a mountaineer, he saw the poverty of Sherpas firsthand and decided to establish the American Himalayan Foundation. Here is Dick talking about development in the Trump era. Well, our views are we have a president that says it's America first, has little interest in development activities. We only spend three-tenths of 1% of our $4 trillion budget on foreign assistance. We actually spend less dollars on foreign assistance than Norway, which only has 5 million people. And it's a shame. And it's short-sighted because a lot of these countries that we don't partner with and help them develop will wind up being countries that may wind up without development or wind up being hostile to us or themselves. Roundtable participant Justin Yifu Lin offered a Chinese perspective on exactly when the U.S. started drifting away from its lead role as a donor and why China is stepping in 
in part through South-South cooperation. South-South cooperation refers to middle- and low-income countries teaming up to share development lessons. I am Justin Yifu Lin. I am the dean of Institute of New Structural Economics. At the same time, I'm also the dean of Institute of South-South Cooperation and Development at Peking University. In the past 10 years, and uh, especially after the 2008 global financial crisis, U.S. turns more attention to the domestic issues and reduce its involvement in the international development. So the role of the U.S. in international development changed from leaders to partners, now reduce its function as a partner. I think certainly the role of China in international development also evolves. And at the beginning, China was a low-income country. China was a recipient of international development supports. And now China, due to its success of transition in the past 40 years, China is a high-middle-income country. And because the size of the population, China now is the second-largest economy in the world. At the same time, China is the largest trading country in the world. And so China should change its role from a recipient to a contributor. And in this process, I think that China certainly wants to reflect its own experiences and provide its support, not only funding, but also, you know, project that can really that assist other low-income countries to enjoy the same success of development in China in the past 40 years. Dick Blum also shared his views on China. I think we should try as much as possible to be partners with China. We will inevitably compete with them in certain areas. But for all the time since I've been going to China, which goes back into the late 70s, We were seen as friends, we were helping them, and I would find it sad for us and the world to find out that we wound up being anything other than friends. But there's no question there's tensions between the two countries, and I think they have mainly been brought about by the Chinese leadership. During the roundtable, participants spoke about the Belt and Road Initiative, It is China's very broadly defined and expansive series of projects around the world to connect China and other nations to land as well as maritime infrastructure routes to advance human progress and, some would say, Chinese power. Roundtable attendees also spoke about China's economic and technological ambitions, many of which are linked to the Belt and Road Initiative. Today, China's ambitions extend to space, As the New York Times reported about a month ago, the Chinese have even built a huge satellite in remote Argentina. That project is both part of a moonshot, allowing China to expand its space program, as well as a ramping up of the country's surveillance power using satellite technology.
Here's Justin Lin again. I think that uh, certainly China has the aspiration to turn from poverty to prosperity, to grind the income ladders from low income to middle income to high income, and uh, technology-wise also to grind the ladders from traditional backward technology to modern technology, because that is the nature of development. And I do see that development in China is a win-win not only for China, but also for the world. Because fundamentally, what we need the most is development. It's expansion of the market opportunities. In the last 10 years, China has contributed about 30% to the global growth, to global market expansion. And uh, China can continue to make that contribution only by relying on the continuous development in China. And I think it's good for China, but it's also good for everyone in the world. I asked Justin what he would say to those who fear the ambition of the Belt and Road Initiative. Doesn't China pose a threat as a geopolitical rival to the U.S. and other donor nations? Well, I think that is China now is on the catching up process. And China also needs to share more responsibility for the development in the world. And China also want to upgrade its industry and its technologies. And so that's the reason why China you know, proposed the Bear and Road Initiative to shoulder more responsibility for reducing the infrastructure bottleneck for growth in other developing world. But at the same time, China certainly also wants to upgrade its technology and its industries including the space programs. I think the space is large enough to accommodate everyone in the world because, you know, still there are so many unknown in the world. And uh, certainly we hope the U.S. continue to contribute to the understanding of the universe, but we should also welcome other countries to contribute to this understanding. Let's pivot here from China's cosmic ambition back to how to support development on the ground. Here are insights from Roundtable participant Alex Zwane, whose work focuses on supporting innovative projects in poor countries. Often these start as experimental pilots, which, once tested in the field, are scaled up. Often the projects involve low-income people as entrepreneurs or agents of change. To be expanded, such projects need to attract philanthropic and commercial funding, rather than traditional development assistance alone. I'm Alex Zwane. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Innovation Fund, or GIF, as we call it. And GIF was launched in 2014 by the governments of the U.S. and the U.K. to accelerate evidence-based innovation to improve the lives of the poor. And... It's since been joined with other government funders, so we are also backed by Sweden, Australia, South Africa, and in conversations with other donor countries, too, to join us. And part of what we're interesting for and exciting, potentially, for these government partners is that 
all of us collectively in the development community are thinking about and talking about investing for impact in a context in which we've made enormous strides in international development. We've reduced child mortality and maternal mortality by huge amounts. Millions of people have lifted themselves out of poverty. And so now we need new tools for today's world. We need tools and investment strategies funding strategies that work in places like India, where we still have many poor people, even while average incomes have grown significantly. We need new tools for fragile, very risky places, which is another context where a lot of extremely poor people live. And so if we want quality public services for these people and productive jobs, then we have to do development differently. And they have to explain why we invest for impact differently. The Global Innovation Fund was really created to look for new ways to support innovators and entrepreneurs. The way that we work lets us reach through to early stage businesses that might fall through the cracks with some of our traditional tools. Alex explained what it means when the Global Innovation Fund looks for new ways to reach early stage businesses and use grant, debt, and equity to fill what she refers to as the pioneer gap. I can explain a little bit about that in that the donor community has traditionally had at its disposal aid agency grants at one end of a spectrum and development finance institution, to use some jargon, project finance at the other. That is, investments that are made maybe in large infrastructure projects and that make a profit for these institutions. What that means then is that while both of these approaches are totally critical and necessary elements in the development landscape, by focusing only on the extremes of this spectrum, then you really miss out on opportunities to use public money to generate social and environmental impact with early stage businesses. So that's where GIF comes in and where other hybrid funds or vehicles could come in. And GIF uses grant, debt, and equity to support entrepreneurs in what we call the pioneer gap where these pioneers have been able to scrape together enough resources to understand their market, validate what they're doing, but they need more funding to get over a certain gap. They need more funding before they can access commercial capital. And they might be generating outside social impact, but if they're doing it in places where capital is scarce and expensive, our traditional tools might not be able to help them. And that's why GIF was created. Alex described examples of projects that GIF has supported so as to bring life to what constitutes an innovative project. Her examples highlight how the right mode of financing can make or break a project. For one in Nigeria, GIF made an investment in the local currency, the Naira. This made the project less risky for other funders, as Alex explains here. I will start with that example from Nigeria. And the entrepreneur that we're backing in Nigeria is a guy called Kola Masha. And he founded a company that he calls Bob and Gona with this vision to not just have a profitable business, but one that will really improve the livelihoods of poor people in northern Nigeria. And Bob and Gona provides end-to-end -end assistance to farmers so that they can get their crops to market at the best place at the best time. Now, because Bob and Gona provides credit through the harvest season to these farmers, it's quite large capital requirements to operate. But cost of capital in Nigeria is pretty high, and international commercial capital, even from 
places like the U.S. Overseas Private Investment Corporation, or OPIC, generally has to be dollar-denominated. Now, in Nigeria, all of us are anticipating that their currency will likely devalue. That means dollar-denominated debt is also really expensive from COLA's perspective. So what we did as GIF is we made our investment in Baba Ngona in the Naira, the local Nigerian currency. This significantly de-risks the investment for other investors who are also thinking about potentially lending to Baba Ngona. Because of this, then, the commercial rate funders were able to come on board with senior dollar-denominated debt, and the tranche of funding from GIF is subordinate debt, as I said, denominated in the local currency. Looking to the future, if Bob and Gona is successful, then they can create hundreds of thousands of jobs in northern Nigeria. And this is the kind of thing that can put a small dent in some of the root causes of the long-simmering conflict with Boko Haram. There's one other point that I like to make when thinking about Bob and Gona. I mean, one thing that the story tells is that filling the pioneer gap means that you need to have flexible capital. But I think working in this pioneer gap also means that you need to recognize and value the social impact of their innovations. So Kola and his team and we have heard firsthand really compelling stories and seen interesting, if suggestive data that the farmers that work with Bob and Kona don't just have increases in their incomes, but their children have better educational outcomes. Women farmers are more empowered because they have more control over their own budgets. You know, there could be impacts from this company that go far beyond productivity increases or price changes that farmers get to experience. But for now... These are just stories or anecdotes. So what GIF is doing is we are supporting a clinical trial experiment to try to validate these gains. This helps us explain to our donors why it was okay to give concessional capital to Bob and Gona, and it will help Cola tell the story of why he's doing what he's doing. My hunch is we'll see really positive results from this trial, and Bob Angona should be an excellent candidate for funding by Nigerian pension funds, ultimately, if it has a chance to prove itself. Another example of a small-scale effort with the power to make a difference was provided to me by Annette Blum, Dick Blum's daughter. Annette, who has a background in cinema and television, has recently pivoted to work with youth from Jerusalem and from the West Bank and Gaza. She made this shift about four years ago following in the footsteps of her father and his abiding interest in the developing world. My name is Annette Blum, and I'm here as a supporter of the Brookings Roundtable due to my father, who has spearheaded this for the last 15 years. And I am here specifically this year because of projects that we have launched in Jerusalem, that work in conjunction with the Blum Center for Developing Economies at Berkeley. This is a partnership that I launched with the Milken Institute in Jerusalem. It's around technology and innovation. We have many students from countries all over the world that are participating in this, and it's all very, very exciting. So I've come to the roundtable this year to really just talk to many of the people that are involved to tell them about it and looking also for other partnerships moving forward. And so we are focusing not only on the students that come from other countries, but 
the ones in Israel that need the extra help. So we have concentrated on the Israeli Arab sector. We have a partnership with a philanthropist, Israeli philanthropist there, a center that's called Bakila, Bakila, which means people coming together to work in the community. And that was started by this philanthropist about 15 years ago. And we've been participating, collaborating with that for the last seven or eight years. And what's happened with that is there are centers for Israeli Arab children from about 11 years old up until graduating age from high school moving to college. Those students are assisted in their studies so that they are able to compete with Israeli Jewish students in the country and others so that they are able to compete and they have the scholastic skills to get into major universities. So this has taken some time, but what has happened is is that these students, with the extra help, because their curriculum is different, because it's mostly taught in Arabic and not in Hebrew, and they have a different educational system there. So they have needed to learn both systems so that they have a chance to compete with others. And we have some wonderful success stories from that. Students that have graduated from those programs then have gone on to major universities in Israel. And in the past, they always felt sort of disillusioned with living there, even though they were citizens of Israel. They felt like they needed to go to Ramallah or go to Amman to study or elsewhere. And it's very exciting to see that moving in that direction. I would say also the great investment in technology, the tech sector in Israel has really opened doors for that community as well so that they have many opportunities for other jobs and other careers that they didn't have. So there's still the political situation doesn't always support it. But in general, what I see going on on the ground is very exciting there. Annette has also worked on cultural and artistic projects that feature people of different faiths and viewpoints. She publicizes her work through Huffington Post, as well as through op-eds in news outlets. However, in the past year or two, with nativism and populist sentiment on the rise in the U.S. and Europe, support for such endeavors has receded. Annette explained. Well, Blumina International I launched on my own, which is a a website that showcases all of the projects that I'm involved in. And also, additionally, I blog for Huffington Post and for Times of Israel. And so when I travel for work around activism, I like to back it up with an article to sort of highlight the work that I'm doing. And I would say, to be truthful, before Trump became president, it was far easier to get traction around these projects. I'm still working with a lot of organizations in New York, which previously brought this overseas because there seems to be a hunger in Europe around young people for the arts activism, social activism platform, for community engagement, and for millennials, they can highlight all of this on the internet. So that's still happening, but it's sort of pulled back a bit, and now it's regrouping and starting again to readjust to the new reality that we're dealing with because there's been a great trend, aside from Trump, of all these populist leaders in in Europe who are sort of against multiculturalism and against immigration and more of a fear factor as opposed to a faith factor. So we are still working in the context and showing that grassroots work does have results and that you can't always penalize people because they come from somewhere else. I would say now it's sort of like it's finding a balance And so where I see it going forward is I think that it will, because this is a phase that we're going through where people need to feel safe because they feel threatened, and that when it does 
regroup that, there will be even more opportunities to do it because the hunger, the need is still there. It's just been a little bit more challenging to get the traction around the projects now. So I would say that I will continue to go forward in the same direction, but I may have to take a different angle, different perspective to make sure that it reaches its objective. Dick Blum reinforced the importance of educating the next generation, no matter where they are. Hear what he says about the American Himalayan Foundation's support to rescue girls who are being trafficked and then getting them into school. Maybe the most significant thing we do is saving young girls from being sold into prostitution in Nepal. And we've had something like 22,000 of them that we have saved from going across the border into India where they never come back and have them in school. They mainly are low-caste Hindus. The families don't particularly like young girls, see them as a liability, and we prove to the families that they are assets, not liabilities. They learn to be social workers or teachers or what have you, and, and you save them and you save their lives. I think some of the finance restructuring new ways of funding projects in developing countries is making progress and are interesting. In terms of getting some of the ways AID runs and monitors their projects, they're still 20 years back and need to improve. Dick went on to speak about cross-disciplinary education in international development, something being supported through the Blum Centers for Developing Countries at UC Berkeley. Many of the students are American, and they're passionate about a career in development. But of course, UC Berkeley also attracts scholars from other countries. The Blum Center offers a global poverty and practice minor. This means students majoring in anthropology, architecture, economics, or engineering can choose to minor in global poverty and practice and undertake a six-week fieldwork opportunity. Called the Practice Experience, it allows them to compete for a fellowship in which they connect theory to action by partnering with NGOs, community, or government entities. I mean, when I went to school at Berkeley, if you said, do you want to major in business or do I want to major in poverty? I said I would have majored in business so I wouldn't have to worry about poverty for myself. But if they had said, you can major in business and minor in poverty, I would say yes. And we've had something like maybe 20,000 students through our classes. You can get a minor degree, but that requires that you take certain courses, not just one or two, and that you spend three or four months working on a approved project in some foreign country, and we sent kids to 80 different countries just out of Berkeley last year. One of the new issues students of development are studying are the Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of these goals, all of which were agreed upon in 2015 by all but a few of the nations of the world. Among the SDGs are ending poverty by 2030, achieving universal education, 
stopping hunger and malnutrition, empowering women and girls, making cities livable, and safeguarding the earth from pollution and climate change. Justin Lin spoke with me about financing the SDGs. I think that certainly all the nations in the world committed to the 2030 Agenda, that is to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals with 17 goals and 169 targets. And all of them are desirable for the world to enjoy peace and uh, prosperity. And the funding required for that is huge. According to some studies, each year we need to spend about 2.3 trillion U.S. dollars. And from now to 2030s, in order to achieve the targets. But global development communities is able to provide only 160 billion. And so compared to the needs, and there's a huge shortage. But there are private sectors funds, and so it's very important to use public sectors development fund to leverage private sectors funding in order to, you know, be able to implement the necessary project for achieving the global commitment for the Sustainable Development Goals by the time of 2030. In discussing how countries move from poverty to prosperity, Justin made the case for what he called structural transformation, which involves supporting the development of industrial and service sectors in low-income countries as they transition out of agriculture. The process is embraced by China and by many African policymakers, but it's treated with skepticism by certain economists who say attempts at industrial policy have a spotty track record in the developing world. But more importantly is to cultivate the ability of the developing country to generate enough resources domestically to carry out those kind of development projects. And uh, the way to help the country to you know, improve their ability for resources creation and mobilization domestically is to have the structural transformation, as I mentioned, from low-value-added traditional agriculture to modern agriculture, and then from agriculture to the manufacturing and gradually to service sectors. And for a country to be successful in this process, you know, there are some criterions that we learn from the past. In each stage of the development, they should follow their competitive advantages in technology and in the trade trading. And secondly, they should not only focus on domestic market, they should you know, be able to compete in international markets. And the development support to the developing country, on the one hand, should relieve the immediate crisis in humanitarian areas, like hunger, like you know, job protection, and so on. But more importantly is to help them to have the ability to develop sectors which they can enter into the global markets. And so they can generate resources by themselves 
and to contribute to the realization of SDGs by the time of 2030. In closing, I asked Justin and Alex what they thought of the roundtable, which is held every year in Aspen, Colorado, with participation from members of the Aspen Strategy Group and the Aspen Institute, and with the likes of Madeleine Albright and former President of Ireland Mary Robinson as long-standing attendees. And this is the first time for me to participate in this roundtable, and I find it's fascinating because it provides a platform to exchange ideas among thought leaders in the world on very important issue of our time. I have to say it's really pretty unique. It is a carefully curated group of people in an informal setting, which means you have lots of time for frank and intimate conversations, but that get right to the heart of the matter. Obviously, in an amazing setting that really makes you feel like you're a little bit away from your normal day-to-day business. And so maybe it's a chance to really think big thoughts and look at problems in a different way. You know, in the hustle and bustle of Washington or New York or Lagos, it's not always so easy to do. So I'm really thrilled to be here. It's my first time. I hope it's not my last. Here's Dick Blum with the last word about the roundtable. He was particularly appreciative that Brookings President John R. Allen participated this year. Let me just say, I think with John Allen, the new president of Brookings, who is a Marine Corps general, basically understands that if you don't save these countries from poverty, you probably wind up with a war. And as some of the generals will say, if you don't do this, give us more money for bullets because we'll need them. So nothing could be more important. It's very hard to sell this to the American public. Today's when everybody's talking about inequality in our own country to get them fully interested at the level they should be in inequality abroad, but we work at it. My thanks to Meryl Tuck Premdahl for bringing these guests and their insights to the show. She's the Communications Director of the Global Economy and Development Program here at Brookings. You can learn more about the Brookings Blum Roundtable on our website. The latest report is titled, Invigorating U.S. Leadership in Global Development. Last year, Merrill was at the 14th Roundtable event, where she also interviewed participants. We produced a two-part series for the Brookings Cafeteria titled, Voices on U.S. Foreign Assistance Under Challenge. You can find those on our website as well. And now here's Governance Studies fellow Molly Reynolds with her take on what's happening in Congress. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies program at the Brookings Institution. It's August here in Washington, which usually means that House members and senators are back in their states and districts. But this year, the schedule's a little different. The House is on recess until after Labor Day, but senators return to D.C. this week to spend at least part of the next few weeks working on spending bills and considering judicial nominations. Some senators will also meet with Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, 
whose confirmation hearings are scheduled to begin on September 4th. The full-on August recess that the House is currently taking is sometimes framed as legislators being on vacation, and certainly when members are away from Washington, they are less focused on legislating. But the kind of activities members engage in while in their districts can be an important part of their service in Congress. Data from Brookings' Vital Statistics on Congress indicates that House members and senators allocate more of their staff resources to positions in their states and districts now than they did historically. This is likely due in part to the fact that they take constituency service seriously, but it's also a reflection of the decreasing power of individual rank-and-file members in the legislative process. Given that each office has a fixed budget for which they can hire staff, why not have more constituency service-oriented staff in one state or district if the opportunity to influence the development of policy has been increasingly centralized in the hands of party leaders? It's also the case that some members of Congress make a strategic, electorally-minded choice to focus more heavily on their districts or states. A number of different political science studies have found that members who are concerned about their electoral prospects tend to focus more heavily on local needs, including by spending more time directing constituents' attention to various benefits they brought home to the state or district. If spending time back home can be important, especially in an election year like this one, then why is the Senate still in Washington for part of August? Because there are certain goals, namely confirming judges and completing work on spending bills, that Senate leaders have chosen to pursue at the expense of a full-length recess. Judicial confirmations have been among Senate Republicans' most significant achievements during the Trump administration. As of earlier this week, the Senate had confirmed 24 appeals court judges, the highest number for a president during his first two years in office. Why has the Senate been so successful on this front? First, thanks to a 2013 change to the procedures for considering judicial nominations, Republicans only need 51 votes to end debate during confirmation debates, as opposed to the 60 votes required for most pieces of legislation. In addition, with only a few exceptions, judicial nominees have not revealed the same divisions within the party that have plagued Republicans' efforts on some legislative issues during the 115th Congress. The Senate's other major August goal is to complete additional work on its version of the spending bills that will fund many federal government programs for the fiscal year that begins on October 1st. So far, the Senate has made steady progress on this task, passing two so-called mini-bus packages that cover seven of the 12 individual appropriations bills that Congress is supposed to complete each year. On tap for this month is a package covering the Departments of Defense, Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education. The Labor HHS Education Bill is traditionally a difficult one for the Senate to complete as a standalone measure because of the potential for controversial policy writers, so finishing work on it in the Senate would be notable. Even if the Senate manages to complete work on some judicial nominations and spending bills during its unusual August session, it would also be well served to save some energy for September. Republicans hope to move to floor consideration of the Kavanaugh nomination relatively quickly after his confirmation hearings. To actually avoid a government shutdown come late September, the Senate and the House will have to agree on final compromise versions of spending bills or reach a consensus strategy around using short-term funding bills for some or all parts of the federal government, potentially running until after the election. While a shutdown is unlikely, as it wouldn't serve anyone in Congress terribly well just weeks ahead of the midterm elections, President Trump could always throw a wrench in congressional leaders' best laid plans over the issue of funding for a border wall. Even with the Senate in session, Capitol Hill may be relatively quiet right now, but come September, there'll be plenty happening in Congress. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues. 
including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holster. The producers are Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Intersections, hosted by Adriana Pita, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>